Hi, I'm Julie Richardson. Um, today I'm going to be talking to you about the early management of traumatic brain injury. So, we have a little one-year-old who has presented to ED. Um, they were staying with Granny. Unfortunately, the stair gate at the bottom of the stairs was left open and the child has fallen down a, a few stairs. We don't know how many um, because it was unwitnessed. Uh, Granny heard a bump, uh, child got up and walked afterwards and seemed to be fine. Injury or the, the time of injury was probably about three hours ago. Um, and the child has come in because they're just not quite right. They vomited once, they may have had a very brief seizure, um, and they're just more and more sleeping. Uh, heart rate's 170, the MAP is 70, CAP returns less than two, but the GCS is quite fluctuant. At one minute it's eight, the next minute it's 10, occasionally it's up to 12, and then it's back down to eight. And really for a lot of the time, the child is just flexing to pain. What do you think is going on? At this point, I'm worried. We've had a, a history of an injury, unwitnessed. We have a child that might have had a very brief seizure, but they have settled. They're certainly not seizing now. Um, and there's a very fluctuant GCS, which wouldn't be typical of somebody post-ictal. So I'm going to plan to intubate and ventilate this child in order to do some more investigations and to keep them safe. So I'm just going to talk you through my approach to um, managing an airway in a child with a suspected head injury. So for a start, this is a child that by definition has a difficult airway. Um, we have to think about C-spine injury. In this particular case, we're less worried because the child's been up and about, but we can't rule it out completely. So in terms of management, we're going to have to keep C-spine control which immediately makes intubation more tricky. Um, um, in terms of agents that I'm going to use, I'm going to use ketamine and rocuronium. Why do I use these? Ketamine is probably the least cardiovascularly unstable agent. It's really important when you've got a head injury or a potential head injury, injury to avoid hypotension. One episode of hypotension can equate to a much, much poorer prognosis. Obviously, with the brain, you want to make sure that they are very well oxygenated. You want to pay attention to the end tidal CO2, particularly once we've got the tube in and you're perhaps directing other aspects of management and organising to go to scan. It's very easy if you're hand ventilating to either underdo it or overdo it as you're talking. So keeping a real close eye on end tidal CO2 and I'll explain the mechanism for that later on. Again, this is a child who you want nicely sedated and also if they've had an injury, they need some pain relief. So you're going to look at those things too. So this is the scan. Child was stable through intubation, parameters all settled, her heart rate came down a little bit. Um, pupils were equal and reactive as before we went to scan, it was safe to go to scan and this is the scan we found. What do you think of it? So what we have is a classic extradural or epidural with a convex hematoma, which goes from suture to suture. So an epidural or extradural is a lesion of the skull rather than a brain injury. 
However, it has a secondary effect on the brain. And you can see here that we've got midline shift and some, and some loss of grey-white matter. But the most significant thing here is that we have an extra dural. So what are you going to do? What's your next step? Your child is, is cardiovascularly and neurologically stable at the moment and the pupils are equal and reactive. So what, this is a true emergency. Um, and you're in a local DGH and you do not have neurosurgery on site. So the first thing you're going to do is ring your friendly neurosurgeon and they are going to be interested because what you're going to state on the phone is I have a one-year-old with a large extradural who is intubated and ventilated, cardiovascularly sta stable, pupils are currently equal and reactive. Why are they interested? Because this needs their help and it needs it as quickly as possible. So what they will be doing at the other end of, of, of the line and the tertiary hospital is preparing a theatre and perhaps opening a second theatre so they can get this child into theatre as quickly as possible. So what's your next step? Well, you're going to give PICU a quick ring out of politeness and to let them know there's a child around and if they are very useful in terms of giving you some further advice if you've forgotten everything I say in this talk. The next thing you're going to do is ring for an ambulance. It is absolutely paramount that we move this child as quickly and as safely as possible and time is, in, is of the essence. This really is a true time critical transfer. The PICU team on your local transfer team will not come out and collect this child and retrieve it because that takes more time. So you need to be ready to move this child as quickly as possible. You're going to pay attention to some of the neuroprotective mechanisms that I'm going to talk about later, but actually the real priority here is surgery and you must move and no delays for putting in central lines and arterial lines. If the ambulance arrives, you need to be ready to get in it and move quickly. In terms of transfer, you need to be prepared for this eventuality. So it's something that as a hospital you should have sim had had a thought about, had some sim practice and worked out what you're going to do when this happens. Extradurals in children are uncommon, but they happen um, and time and is of the essence. So you're going to prepare for transport like you would for any other child, although you do this less frequently, so you need to have thought about it before. So you're going to prepare equipment, you're going to acquire prepare for disaster, you're going to predict what happens if the tube comes out, what happens if the line comes out, but you're also going to think about what happens if the child deteriorates and think about what you might need specifically for this child. So you're going to try and think through what management you might need. PICU will always be helpful on the other hand, end of the phone. So en route, on transfer, this child suddenly um, has a dilated pupil. Um, you don't know that at first. All you can see sitting in your chair on the ambulance is that the, the child suddenly became very hypertensive and there was a bit of a bradycardia. So what are you going to do? The first thing you're going to do is stop the ambulance um, and you're going to check the pupils. And yes, you were right that one of the pupils has blown. What are you going to do in this situation? What's your next steps? So the next steps are you're going to sedate this child more heavily, make sure they're asleep. You're going to 
use your hypertonic saline that you thought ahead and thought I might need that and you're going to give two mils per kilo of hypertonic saline and you're going to briefly hyperventilate this child for five minutes. And then you're going to move, um, get the ambulance moving again and really as speedily and but as safely as possible get your team and child to um, the tertiary centre because absolutely nothing you can do in the back of the ambulance is going to make too much difference to the actual bleed itself. You might help a little bit with the secondary brain injury. So when you get to the tertiary centre, you will be going straight to theatre and um, the anaesthetic team and the neurosurgical team will be there waiting for you. They're lightly scrubbed and ready to go. As you hand over events, they will be already prepping the skin and beginning to open the head because this really is a timely situation. Um, they need to take the clot out and most, almost two thirds of extradurals are secondary to rupture of the middle meningeal artery and that needs to be um, cauterised and fixed. At that point, you'll step back this child post-op will go to paediatric intensive care where they will be asked to wake the child up immediately. Um, and all being well and if this has happened quickly and, and fast, the child will wake up and be completely and utterly well and you will have actually saved a life. Right, okay, so you saved a life, well done. I'm so pleased. It, you know, extradurals are uncommon, but you, it is really about identifying them, thinking, could it be treating them and getting moving as quickly as possible? So now we're gonna rewind, um, and we're going to go back to our one-year-old. So it's, this one-year-old this time has come in, and the history is that their older brother has hit them with a toy earlier in the day, about an hour ago. Um, they come in, their heart rate is 170, their MAP is 70, their cat reef turn light before is less than two seconds. Um, you're told that they are seizing and their GCS is six to eight. When you arrive, you actually think this child isn't seizing, they're posturing and they're decerebrate. I have to say that's something that does get missed occasionally because in paediatrics we see so many seizures that um, we're very tuned into them and very good at, at identifying and treating them. Posturing is less common and it is sometimes missed. So I think if you've got a child with an unusual history or is not um, responding to seizure management, I would always just have in the back of your head, could this actually be posturing? Am, am I dealing with something else? So back to managing the airway and oh surprise surprise it's exactly the same. So by definition this is a difficult airway. This child is one so they'll be in the neutral position which makes it not too tricky. If this was an older child um, you might want them in an extended neck position usually for intubation. Obviously you can't do, it, do that because um, you've got to protect the C-spine. Um, so it is by definition a difficult airway and it's useful that the whole team is aware of that and knows how to help you and keep inline stabilisation. The other thing about trauma is that they always have a full stomach and they're very much more likely to vomit than other children. So you need to be aware that that aspiration and vomiting is possible and be prepared for that and know how to tip your bed etc.
Again, I'm going to use ketamine and rock uranium for the same reasons as before. Again, I'm going to avoid hypotension. We're going to oxygenate really well. Um, and I'm going to pay a lot of attention to my end-tidal CO2 and get a gas as soon as possible to check that my PCO2 is just perfect. Again, once intubation has, has been achieved, I'm going to in introduce continuous sedation, probably morphine and midazolam, and which includes some pain relief. So this is the next scan. What do you think of it? I'll give you a minute to look. So in this case, we have a different situation. So as you can see, there's a lot of external boggy swelling and actually you could feel this um, and see it on when examining the child. We've also got a very definite comminuted, comminuted fracture. Um, we have a subdural. We have definite loss of grey-white differentiation and, per and um, we've lost our ventricles um, and there's perhaps a little bit of midline shift. So what are we going to do next? Well, unlike the last case, yes, you may well contact the neurosurgeon, but they're going to be a lot less interested. I'm going to tell you a secret. Neurosurgeons don't like head injuries because they can't do anything about them. Um, it's rare that they can do anything to change their outcome. And really, it's all about doing some basic things really well. What we're trying, we can do absolutely nothing about the injury that has happened already. All we're trying to do is to pre prevent secondary injury, secondary swelling, trying to manipulate the intracranial pressure as best we can. In order to understand the management of traumatic brain injury, I think you need to understand a little bit about the Munro-Kelly doctrine. And that really is talking about um, the fact that you have a, a closed box in the terms of you being your skull and there is only so much you can put inside it in terms of volume um, before it leads to high pressure. Obviously in an infant that's different because they have an open fontanelle and that's why some infants get away with quite serious injuries because basically they've got an open lid and the pressure is let out and you feel that when you've got say a meningitis and they've got a full fontanelle. So in the usual circumstance in the skull you have three things. Mostly you have your brain taking up the vast majority of space and then you've got a static volume of CSF and blood. Once you get to a point where um, the brain is injured or there's something extra in the brain, you're putting in extra pressure. So in the second uh, diagram, we, this is where we have the extra dural. So the extra dural could be replaced by a tumour. It just means you've pushed something extra into that brain, um, which is a very fixed volume. And in doing so, that squashes the brain and the CSF and increases the pressure within your brain. That's the mechanism of increased ICP. And then in our current uh, situation, um, the blood-brain barrier has become disorganised and broken, and therefore changes in blood flow are much more likely, um, and I'll demonstrate that likely, um, I'll demonstrate that in a moment. The brain itself has become swollen, which then reduces the volume in which the CSF can take space and the ICP rises. 
And this is demonstrated in this graph, which shows you pressure volume. So in terms of, if you think a bit of it a bit like a suitcase, so you have your suitcase, nothing in it. You put more and more clothes in, more and more and more. You try and close it, it closes. You put more, you open it, you put some more things in, it closes. But you're struggling more and more to get it closed. And then at some point you put so many things in that when you close it, uh, the pressure within it just pops open. And you reach a point where um, exponentially pressure goes up. And that is what goes on in that closed box of a skull. So as I say, the reason that infants get away with fairly severe injuries sometimes is because they have got an open, open box. Um, and the pressure at which um, the exponential rise in pressure happens is about 20 millimetres of mer mercury, which is why that's that, the, the aim to keep ICP below that range if possible. In a smaller infant, actually, we may be overestimating what it should be, and it may be 15 millimetres of mercury is, is where we should be targeting once we've got an ICP monitoring. But currently we're in the ED, we do not have a, um, access to an ICP monitor as yet, um, but there are some things that we can do to actually help and to try and alleviate and reduce pressure if we can. So it's really important to do the basics well, and I cannot emphasise this enough. And even when we go up to intensive care, this is the main emphasis of management. It's not the fancy stuff, it really is doing the basics well. So what are the basics? So if you haven't already, you're going to put this child head up, about 30 to 40 degrees, and why do you do that? It's basically about allowing um, your venous drainage to occur, it's about gravity um, and allowing blood to flow away from the head. Then you're going to pay attention to the lungs and your gases, you're going to oxygenate this child really well. Why are you going to do that? Because the brain lives on oxygen. So you want your SATs 96 and above, you want your PAO2 8 to 10 to, or more. You're also going to control your PCO2. We've talked about paying attention to your end tidal CO2. Now we're going to talk about your PCO2. And it's really, really important. And I rarely say I want things to be perfect because it's impossible and, I, and it is impossible. But I want that CO2 to be 4.5 kilopascals. And I want you to aim for that. And why do I want it to be absolutely perfect? Because Physiologically, it makes a huge difference to the amount of blood that you send to the brain and, and the amount of oxygen. So if your CO2 is too high, your blood vessels vasodilate and you're putting more blood into the brain and causing a rise in ICP. If you reduce your CO2 down to the threes, then your ICP will fall which might sound like it would be a great, a great thing, but the problem with that is you've actually led to vasoconstriction of the blood vessels and you're actually limiting the amount of oxygen to the brain, which is not a good thing. So I want the CO2 to be perfect. In terms of other things that you need to manage, so blood pressure. So you want good blood pressure. You want to avoid hypotension. We don't have an ICP in 
in place at the moment, so we can't really decide what the cerebral perfusion pressure should be at this point. But you want the blood pressure to be adequate and good for um, this age of child. One note, if you are struggling with hypotension in this child, um, there, I would be looking for another mechanism of injury. Is there somewhere else that this child is bleeding from? Is it the abdomen? Is it the pelvis? Is it the, uh, the th in the thigh, femur injury? Because if the, the skull is closed, you should not be able to lose enough blood into your skull to drop your blood pressure. Obviously, if this is an infant, that can be very different. You can lose your whole circulating volume into, into your head, um, in which case that can be the only injury. But if you're having trouble with hypotension and you've not given drugs or anything that would cause that, look for another injury. The other thing you're going to do is you're going to pay attention to the glucose. You want to avoid hypoglycemia. Um, the brain the brain's fuel is oxygen and sugar, so if you don't have enough sugar, it's like a neuronal assassin and you will not have good outcome. The other thing you're going to pay attention to is the sodium. Um, I'm not worried if the sodium's a bit on the high side. I actually prefer it like that, but I would want to avoid hyponatremia and fix it. In terms of temperature, um, these days we want the temperature to be normal and certainly we want to avoid pyrexia. Um, every degree um, C of temperature that rises above the 37 increases the metabolic rate um, exponentially, so just be careful. So avoid um, temperature. You want to sedate this patient really well. What you're trying to do is switch off as much brain activity as possible and really let this brain rest. So you're going to sedate them well. Um, and make sure that they are pain-free because pain will absolutely cause a rise in ICP. Prevention of seizures. If you had a head injury, there is a chance that you, that might lead to a seizure. Um, and a seizure uses, is, increases the metabolic demand of the brain by a huge amount, so it is best if it doesn't happen. Um, and these days, my recommendation would be to start Kepra um, and probably run that for at least seven days. Okay, so medical management is really important. It's doing the simple things really well. It's, it's really important and may make the difference. There's not a lot of evidence about everything that we do in intensive care um, in terms of prognosis. Um, it definitely, some of the things we do changes the ICP, but does that make a better outcome? A lot of that is unknown, but these basics are really important. The other thing that might be considered at this point, although rarely, is a surgical decompression. In this particular child, it's unlikely because we've got a skull that's fractured, which will be allowing some of the pressure to dissipate. Um, this is where the neurosurgeon needs to be involved and have a, a serious conversation about, is an early decompressive craniectomy something that will be useful in this case? And it's very much a case-by-case -case decision. Um, Decompressive craniectomy, if undertaken, um, is proven that the earlier you do it, the better the outcome. So to just to go back and summarise what we've talked about, do the basics well. You have this patient head up, you want to provide good oxygenation, you keep the CO2 perfect, you avoid hypotension, you avoid hypoglycemia, you keep them 
Apyrexil, you sedate well and you avoid seizures. The other little things are you're going to put a catheter in if you haven't already because of this child's trying to pee and can't because of all the drugs you've given them. That's going to put their ICP up. You're going to try and minimise handling and log rolling. Again, those things will put up the ICP but are important to be done at least once so that you know what you're dealing with. And in terms of suctioning, um, you should suction and make sure the ET tube remains patent. People always worry about uh, causing a spike in ICP with suctioning and in truth when we have an ICP monitoring that does happen. We often give a little bolus of sedation beforehand but what would be far far worse than doing a one-off suction is if an ET tube actually gets blocked and you have to change it that's definitely going to put your ICP up. Okay so going back to our child we've done all of those things and they've been very stable and we're going to think about they're not suitable for a decompressive craniectomy and we're going to move them up to intensive care. However, let's go back to the history. This was a child who seems to have a very severe head injury and the story was of a child, an older child, hitting them over the head with a toy. That seems unlikely in view of what we found on scan and the way the child is behaving. So we are worried about safeguarding. Um, and it's really important at this point to get a multi-agency approach, um, get the police involved, get social services involved, make sure that any ch children, other children in the family are protected and safe. You need to be really open and transparent with the family about your worries and concerns, a detailed history about time and what happened and where things happened is really important. A body map has to be thoroughly completed to document any other injuries and the injuries that you find and there should be detailed measurements and photographs taken. And then you need to make sure you've done some basic investigations including the full blood count, um, clotting and um, euthanies and really follow your local safeguarding pro forma. It's important that this is done in parallel with, with looking after the child Obviously, the ABC and, and um, medical management of the child comes first, but this needs to go hand in hand um, and must be delegated if you can't do it yourself. Um, and the sooner you get a detailed history and get a catalogue of events, the better. That's all I'm going to say today. Um, the management in, pa in paediatric intensive care really continues what we've talked about and we add in a few other strategies but the basics are the most important and well proven um, aids to care of the child with a traumatic brain injury. Thank you.